Good, good evening and I welcome each and every one of you tonight to our brethren and sisters and young people to our Wednesday night Bible class. We'll open uh, our class this evening by singing together hymn 101 followed by prayer. Also I'd like to welcome Brother John and Auntie Sharon King back from uh, overseas, is that correct? Welcome, uh, we have missed you, welcome to uh, tonight. I, I guess we'll open our class uh, by, uh, by reading together 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 31, and I call upon our brother Tim Badger to read that for us. Brother Tim. Reading together from the first book of the Kings, chapter 1, verses 1 to 31. First Kings, chapter 1. Now, King David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Wherefore his servants said unto him, Let there be sought for my lord the king a young virgin, and let her stand before the king, and let her cherish him. And let her lie in thy bosom, that my lord the king may get heat. So they sought for a fair damsel throughout all the coasts of Israel, and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. And the damsel was very fair, and cherished the king, and ministered to him, but the king knew her not. Then Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father had not displeased him at any time in saying, Why hast thou done so? And he also was a very goodly man, and his mother bare him after Absalom. And he conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they they following Adonijah helped him. But Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan the prophet, and Shimei, and Rei, and the mighty men which belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen, and fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren the king's sons, and all the men of Judah the king's servants. But Nathan the prophet, And Benaiah, and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother, he called not. Wherefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith doth reign, and David our Lord knoweth it not? Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life, and the life of thy son Solomon." Go and get thee in unto King David, and say unto him, Didst thou not, my lord, O king, swear unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then doth Adonijah reign? Behold, while thou yet talkest there with the king, I also will come in after thee, and confirm thy words. And Bathsheba went in unto the king, into the chamber, And the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite ministered unto the king. And Bathsheba bowed, and did obeisance unto the king. And the king said, What wouldest thou? And she said unto him, My lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thine handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah reigneth, and now, my lord, the king, thou knowest it not. And he hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the sons of the king, and Abiathar the priest, and Joab the captain of the host. But Solomon thy servant hath he not called. And thou, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon thee, that thou shouldest tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise it shall come to pass, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, 
that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet also came in. And they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan the prophet. And when he was come in before the king, he bowed himself before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, My lord, O king, hast thou said Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? For he has gone down this day, and hath slain oxen and fat cattle and sheep in abundance, and hath called all the king's sons, and the captains of the host, and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they eat and drink before him, and say, God save king Adonijah. But me, even me thy servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and thy servant Solomon, hath he not called? Is this thing done by my lord the king, and thou hast not showed it unto thy servant, who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king sware and said, As the Lord liveth that hath redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead, even so will I certainly do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth, and did reverence to the king, and said, Let my lord, King David, live forever. Thank you, Brother Tim. We now look forward, brethren and sisters, to hearing from our brother, Lane Rittmeyer, who will lead us in tonight's Bible class to the title, Women in the Line of Christ, Bathsheba. Brother Lane. Thank you, Brother Con and Brother Tim, for reading. Uh, tonight's subject is Bathsheba, the fourth woman that is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, those women specially mentioned in the line of Jesus. Now, Bathsheba falls in the same category as those previous women whom we have studied, Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. Because all these women got their promised seed, not by a first husband, but by the second or a subsequent one. I believe this establishes the principle of election by God. And it's amazing to think how God has worked in the lives of these women to provide a seed, a seed of the woman, to overcome the seed of the serpent. And all these women are, of course, a type of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was betrothed unto Joseph, but the seed didn't come from him. It came from God himself. But Sheba was a woman with an extramarital relationship, and we would like to say, by no fault of hers. Although, I was once reading in a lexicon, Parker's lexicon, an old one, which John Thomas also used, and I was, in a sense, shocked to read that he called her, in that lexicon, an adulteress, which, of course, she was. If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 22... We just read these two verses. There's a bit of a distressing chapter to read. It all starts with if, and God willing, that would never happen among one of us. In verse 23, we read, If a damsel, that is a virgin, be betrothed unto her husband, and in God's eyes it is as good as being married one to another, and a man find her in the city and lie with her, then you shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city, and you shall stone them with stones that they die. The damsel, because she cried not, being in the city, and the man, because she has humbled his neighbor's wife. So shalt thou put away evil from among you, because the thing that happened, happened in a city. And if Bathsheba would have shouted aloud and cried out, she would have had helped, and perhaps that would not have happened, which we know well uh, what happened between David and Bathsheba. But then, who could argue with a king? Who could resist a king? And perhaps how did she feel about being called by the king? It's an honor, isn't it, to be called by the king? But then, did King David really need another wife? He had already six wives. Why do you need a seventh one? If you go to 1 Samuel chapter 18, we can read how he got his first wife. 
David's first wife in 1 Samuel chapter 18. Well, I, I mean actually, um, it's not verse 2. Um, the verse 17. As after David had overcome Goliath, and they saw said unto David, that is 1 Samuel 18 and verse 17, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me, and fight Yahweh's battles. And Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. But it came to pass in verse 19, at a time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel, the Meholothite, to wife. And Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. What a way, brethren and sisters, to give your daughter away, to her husband, so that she may be a snare unto her. It's not a very good start for a marriage, is it? Because David did buy her, actually, for those 200 foreskins of the Philistines. But, brethren and sisters, it's not a good beginning to a marriage. He knew that his daughter, Michal, was more loyal to him than to David. She knew that before, he knew that beforehand. When you read through these chapters, she is always referred to as Saul's daughter, hardly ever as David's wife. Her character is very soon revealed in the next chapter, in chapter 19. When David, when Saul, in verse 10, sought to smite David, even to the wall with the javelin, but he slipped away... And verse 11 says, Saul also sent messengers unto David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, If thou save not thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. And Michal took, it says here, an image. The word in Hebrew is teraphim, just like Rachel had the teraphim, and laid him in the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair for his bolster. And covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And it begs the question, brothers and sisters, how strong was this marriage? David had to flee. But why did she stay behind? Why didn't she go with him? A husband and wife should go through everything together, through good times and through bad times. But we know later on, when David brought in the ark, she despised him in her heart. Is not a good marriage, brothers and sisters, if your loyalty is not completely with your husband, but rather with the old house of Israel, the father Saul, more so than with David. If you go to Second Samuel chapter three, we can read that David had many more wives. In Second Samuel chapter three, in verse two. We read unto David were sons born in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam the Jezreelites, so she was wife number two. And his second, Kiliab, which elsewhere is called Daniel, of Abigail, the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maaka, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Chagid. And the fifth, Shephatiah, son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethriam, by Ekla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. We would have thought, brethren and sisters, I'm sure you would have thought the same, that the promised seed would have come from this wonderful woman, Abigail, who prevented David from shedding innocent blood. But that was not the case. Yahweh apparently didn't choose him, because we don't know anything much about the character of Kiliab. Maybe he was not suitable, and maybe he died early. We just don't know. So when he came to Jerusalem... After this time in Hebron, David chose yet another wife, the seventh. And the way she became his wife was highly unusual, to say the least. If you go to the 11th chapter of Second Samuel, and it is sad to read this. In verse 1, it came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel. 
and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Why was he not with his men in the field, where a king ought to have been, and all what happens next could have been prevented? Verse 2, it came to pass in the eventide that David rose up from off his bed. What was he doing on his bed in the evening at 6 o'clock at night? Kings shouldn't be asleep or lying on his bed. They should be active and working. He walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. You may say, well, he couldn't help that. But why did he keep looking? Because he said the woman was very beautiful to look upon. We can't always help that we see things which we are not supposed to look at. But if you keep looking at those things, brethren and sisters, then the situation becomes very difficult. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And he said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? And he was the son of Ahithophel, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her. For she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. We don't know how David could see her. Her house was apparently uh, below his house. If you know the city of David, the palace of David has been recently been found. It's right on the top of the mountain, but then get a very steep slope going down to the Kidon Valley. And the houses are built in terraces, one below another. So it's not difficult if you stand on the roof and you look down. You can look down onto the roof or most likely into the courtyard of the house that was below his palace. And that's where she must have been. She had to make elaborate preparations for her purification. If you would read in Leviticus chapter 15, it says that even her bed had to be cleansed. And all this may have attracted, of course, David's attention. There may be something positive to learn, actually, from this, because she became the wife of the king. And she was attractive to him because she was purified from her uncleanness. Interestingly, that chapter Leviticus 16 which we've been talking about quite recently, frequently, the Day of Atonement comes after chapter Le- Leviticus 15, where we are told how do women need to cleanse themselves after their uncleanness. Does it not tell us, brethren and sisters, that we need to cleanse ourselves before we can go to the Day of Atonement and get atoned by the blood of Christ? The Spirit is telling us that we all, men and women, need to be cleansed. In God's eyes, we need to be purified before we can become the bride of the king. Now, all these things are only shadows of the real things. If you go to Matthew chapter 15, we can see how Christ explains some of those matters of uncleanness. In Matthew 15, in verse 18... Just after the disciples had eaten bread and they didn't wash their hands, and he says there in verse 17, Do you not yet understand that whatsoever enters in at the mouth goes into the belly and is cast out into the draft? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. We are all created with the natural functions of our bodies. And that's the way God has created us. There's nothing wrong with them. But they are used as types to show what comes out of us are all these unclean things. And we need to cleanse ourselves from all these things, brethren and sisters. So the literal is only a type of the spiritual. But nevertheless, what David did displeased Yahweh and he sent Nathan the prophet to him with the following message if you go to chapter 12 Yahweh sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and said unto him there were two men in one city the one rich and the other poor the rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb which he had bought and nourished up And it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. 
He's obviously talking about Urijah and Bathsheba. And of course, if Bathsheba was like a daughter unto Urijah, then Urijah may have been a bit of an older man who may have had children from a previous marriage. But then in verse 4 it says, There came a traveler unto the rich man. And that is how sin comes to us, brethren and sisters. It's just like a traveler. He's on your doorstep before you know it. But do we open up the door for him and let him in? Or do we send those travelers away? But this traveler came unto the rich man. And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man because David had a great sense of justice. Because it's easier to judge somebody else than to judge yourselves. And we all fall the same category, brethren and sisters. We can so easily see the mistake in other people, but do we see the mistakes in ourselves? So his anger was, rightly, greatly kindled against the men. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And that's the awful thing. And Nathan said to David, Thou art that man. And of course, then he goes on to say, All the goodness that God had given to David, anointed him, made him king, gave him a house in Israel, and all these things. But then, why have you done this? It says in verse 12, Thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. All our sins, brothers and sisters, will be revealed, if not in this life, then at the judgment seat. We cannot get away from them. But how do we react? Do you remember Adam, when God said, Why did you eat of the tree? Oh, the woman has given it to me. The woman says, Oh, the serpent has given it to me. But not David. What does he say? In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And that's wonderful. Because if we confess our sins, they can be forgiven. If we hide them, they won't be forgiven. And therefore Nathan said to David, Yahweh has also put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. And have we got the courage, brothers and sisters, when we are confronted with a misdeed, with a sin, a transgression against God's commandment? Are we courageous enough to say, I have sinned? It changed David forever. If you go to Psalm 51... There's a psalm which David said when David the prophet came into him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And David was never the same again, brothers and sisters, because he says, Have mercy upon me, Elohim, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquities, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou might be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou art judged. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me, or sin me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create me a clean heart, Elohim, and renew a right, or a constant spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. How could he ever be joyful again after having done this evil thing? Not just taken a man's wife, but killed her husband also. But brothers and sisters, we may not have killed, we may not have committed adultery, but we've all sinned before God. If we only are willing to confess our sins, like it says in the first epistle of John, in chapter 1 and verse 9, I read it for you, you know it so well. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, 
the righteous. So if we confess our sins, then they can be forgiven. Just like David was not too proud to forgive him, to ask for forgiveness and to say that he had sinned. But that doesn't mean to say that he was going off scot-free. He had judged that that man that took that poor lamb from the, from the, man, the, lamb from the poor man had to pay fourfold. And David paid fourfold because the baby of Bathsheba died. Amnon died. Absalom, his son, died. And Adonijah, we read about in chapter 1 of Kings, mercifully after David's death, he also died. So we confess our sins, they can be forgiven, but there is always a consequence because God is righteous. But then if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 12, then it's wonderful because we would have written them off, wouldn't we, brothers and sisters? We would never have a man like that in our meeting, or a woman for that matter. Just like we wouldn't have Tamar in our meeting, or Rahab, or the Gentile Ruth. But in that chapter 12, if you go to verse 24, it says, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in unto her, and lay with her, and she bare a son. And he called his name Solomon, and Yahweh loved him. Isn't it amazing, brethren and sisters, that God has chosen that union to bring forth a promised son? We would never have done that, would we? After all what had happened between David and Bathsheba. And then he, verse 25, that is Yahweh, sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Yaditya. Beloved of Yah. So God says, I can work with that boy, with Solomon. Never mind what happened before. The sins have been forgiven, blotted out. I won't remember them anymore. And I can work with this boy. I can work with David, who has repented, and with Bathsheba. He called his name Yeditya, beloved of Yah, because of Yahweh. And that is the key phrase, brothers and sisters, in this verse. Because of Yahweh, ba'avur Yahweh in Hebrew, a very important and special f- phrase. Look how it is used, for example, in Exodus chapter 9. Because of Yahweh. In chapter 9 of Exodus, in chapter 16, God is speaking to Pharaoh. After Moses had said, that he was going to stretch out his hand, in verse 15, that he might smite thee and thy people with pestilence, that shall be cut off from the earth. Then he says, and in very deed, for this cause have I raised thee up, for to show in thee my power, that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. For this cause, the same phrase as in Second Samuel chapter 12, and verse 15, because of this, I've raised thee up. And if you go to Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 9, you can see how that is explained. In Romans chapter 9, the apostle picks this up. And he says, in verse 15, after he had explained that in Isaac shall thy seed be called and not in Ishmael. Verse 15 says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that's God's prerogative. And I will have compassion on him whom I will have compassion. So then it's not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That is the phrase, for this same purpose. So God works with his purpose, and he can choose who fits in that purpose, who is going to be used. Pharaoh is going to be used so that his name be declared in all the earth. And Solomon is going to be used because of Yahweh to show that it is his special election. And there's nothing but we can say about it, either for or against. And that is something we need to learn. Because it's God that has called all of us together. We're all brethren and sisters. We haven't chosen each other. But God has called us. God has elected us. And therefore, you must have mercy on each other as well. 
because God has had mercy on us. So the principle of Ba'avu Yahweh, because of Yahweh, shows the principle of election. That was employed in the choosing of Solomon. And God knew all this long beforehand, brethren and sisters, because if you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 22, there's a parallel chapter to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David expressed to Solomon his early desire to build a temple in verse 8, Or verse 7 for connection, David said to Solomon, My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house unto the name of Yahweh my Elohim. But the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Thou hast shed blood abundantly, and hast made great wars. Thou shalt not build a house unto my name, because thou hast shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. That's what he said when he first came to Jerusalem. Behold, a son shall be born through thee, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon. God has given him a name long before he was born. So God knew what was going to happen, and I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. A wonderful promise that God gave to, to David that he will get a son who's going to be called Solomon. And when that second boy was called, a Nathan had came to David, and then that was decided that God had said that he is going to be the son of whom going to be sit upon his throne. And later in chapter 28, David again says it. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 5. Solomon is speaking here, and of all David's sons, for for Yahweh has given me many sons, says David, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit upon the throne of the kingdom of Yahweh over Israel. And he said unto me, Solomon, thy son, he shall build a house and my courts. And for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. Moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever, if he be constant to do my commandments and my judgments as at this day. So there was a condition attached to it, if he be constant. Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, now therefore, be, now therefore in the sight of all Israel, the congregation of Yahweh and in the ordinance of our king, keep and seek for all the commandments of Yahweh your Elohim, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance for your children after you forever. And thou, Solomon my son, Know thou the the Elohim of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For Yahweh searches all hearts, and understandeth all the imagination of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. So he was called upon to serve him forever. And take heed now, he says in verse 10, for Yahweh has chosen thee to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. We all are engaged, brothers and sisters, in the work of building the house of Yahweh. And we need to be strong and do it. But of course, ultimately, this promise is fulfilled in Christ. Because Solomon was also just a man with all the weaknesses which we are also encumbered with. So that was the beginning of Bathsheba. How David took her, and how the first son died, but how God has chosen the second son. At the end of the life of David, a dangerous situation arose for Bathsheba, which might have costed her her life. In a chapter his brother Tim read for us, we see that her life was in danger. And Bathsheba, like the other women before her, found herself in a similar situation. Because Tamar was going to die also. She was going to be burned if she didn't have that pledge, which is a type of the Holy Spirit, word of God. If Rahab didn't have that scarlet thread, she was going to be destroyed with the inhabitants of Jericho. And Ruth would have remained childless if Boaz, the Redeemer, would not have redeemed her. And now we come to see that Bathsheba also needed something to save her life. 
In the time, of course, we're speaking of is the rebellion of Adonijah, who wanted to usurp the kingdom, because he was the oldest son, wasn't he? Before the death of David. Let's go back then to the 1 Kings chapter 11, 1 Kings chapter 1. So read again these few verses, verse 11. Therefore Nathan spake unto Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, saying, Hast thou not heard that Adonijah, the son of Chagid, does reign? And David, our Lord, knows it not. Now therefore come, let me, I pray thee, give thee counsel, that thou mayest save thine own life and the life of thy son Solomon. Go and get thee in unto King David, and say unto him, Didst not thou, my lord, O king, swear unto thy handmaid, saying, Surely... Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. Why then does Adonijah reign? How did Nathan know that David had sworn this to Bathsheba? We are told in the Bible when that happened. But while you keep your finger in one Kings, let's go back to that Second Samuel chapter 15. Second Samuel 12, excuse me. And those verses 24 and 25. After David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, he went into her and she bare a son and called his name Solomon. Yahweh loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet and called his name Yedidja, beloved of Yahweh, because of Yahweh. Do you think, brother and sister, that he only had a little card with him? So congratulations on the birth of your son and please call him Yedidja and that's all. If it says, Bavu Yahweh, because of Yahweh, that must have been a very serious meeting. And I suggest that Nathan was witness here to David swearing to Bathsheba that her son will sit on the throne. Because that phrase, because of Yahweh, is so important. And Nathan remembered it. And Bathsheba remembered it. Nathan but more than Bathsheba. Because now at the end of her life, she needed that oath. Her name is called Bathsheba. That means the daughter of the oath. And she could only save her life by appealing to the oath. She was the daughter of the oath. Because if you go back in 1 Kings chapter 1, then King David did remember. Can you imagine if he wouldn't? Verse 28, it says, King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As Yahweh liveth, it has redeemed my soul out of all distress, even as I swear unto thee by Yahweh Elohim of Israel. And I believe that happened when Nathan the prophet went to him at first, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my set. Even so will I certainly do this day. And that word swear of an oath occurs about four times in this chapter. And then verse 31. But she bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence and said, Let my Lord King David live forever. So, brothers and sisters, at the end of her life, of David's life at least, and she must have been about the same age, but slightly younger than David, she had to have something to save her life. She had to appeal to the oath that David made to her. And so we also need to make sure that we have something to appeal to when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Because we also are the children of the oath. But she was the daughter of the oath. But we also have an oath. And we need to appeal to that in order to save our lives. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. That's where our oath comes in. The one we have got to appeal to. It speaks about those at the end of verse 12 who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. What about those promises? It says in verse 13, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, God swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Even so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, 
confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. And that hope is embedded in the promises which God has given to Abram by an oath. And that hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, brethren and sisters, he's speaking there about the oath which God made to Abraham, that in blessing our blessing and in multiplying our multiplied thy seed as the stars of heaven, as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be, be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So let's remember then the requirements. We need to have something to save our lives. Whether it's the pledge of Tamar, a type of the Holy Spirit according to Ephesians, the scarlet thread is the color of blood. God has made the covenant of blood with us through the blood of Jesus Christ to save us. And we have a Redeemer just like Ruth had Boaz. But we don't have a Redeemer yet. We don't see him yet. And until we see him, we have this oath which God made, by which he confirmed the promises, which is the anchor of our soul, that great hope. Let us not let go of that, brothers and sisters, if we want to save our lives. But of what else do we know about Bathsheba? What do we know about her character? What do we know how she, about how she brought up her son Solomon? David seems to be very occupied, if you read those following chapters, with Absalom more than with Solomon. What kind of advice did she give to the future king? Because she believed that Solomon was going to be the next king. And I have a suggestion that there's actually one chapter in the Bible which contains her words, the words which Bathsheba wrote for Solomon, the advice which she gives. If you think of the book of Proverbs, brothers and sisters, the book of Proverbs is made of several sections, isn't it? We know the first nine chapters. We have there God, as it were, speaking to his son. From chapter 10 to 24, we've got all the Solomon, all the Proverbs, which Solomon wrote. Up to chapter 29, we've got the Proverbs, which were copied by Hezekiah's men. You go to chapter 30, it's a very different chapter. So we go to Proverbs chapter 30. And suddenly we've got somebody else coming on the scene. It says the words of Agur, the son of Yake, even the prophecy. The man spake unto Ithiel, even unto Ithiel and Uchal. And we get a whole uh, prophecy, or a burden rather, for this particular man. We don't know who Agur is. We don't know his father, Yake. We don't know who Ithiel is. We don't know who Uchal is. So what's the point in writing all this down? But in Hebrew, all words have a meaning. You could translate it like this. The words of the gatherer. He that gathers. The son of obedience. Because that word to obey in verse 17 is the same word. The man, or the mighty man, spake unto Etl. God is with me. Even unto Ethiel, God is with me, and Uchal, I will be able. So here's something wonderful, that the man who wants to gather, who wants to gather believers, he spake to somebody, Ethiel, God is with me. Anyway, I want to really talk about chapter 31, because there we got a, another prophecy, or rather a burden. These are the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy, or the burden, that his mother taught him. Now, we don't know who Lemuel is. We know that Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. There's no king mentioned by the name of Lemuel, but a Jewish king or a Gentile king. But the name Lemuel means God is for him, or God is with him. And remember that God was with Solomon all the time that Solomon was with him. So I believe that King Lemuel is actually King Solomon. And the burden is what his mother taught him. Who was the mother of Solomon? 
was it not Bathsheba? So do we have here then the words, the encouraging words, the guiding words of Bathsheba for her son Solomon, the one who God was with? We usually focus on verses 10 to 31. It's all about the virtuous woman. But there's no point starting to talk about the virtuous woman if you don't take the first nine verses into consideration. Because all that Bathsheba has gone through would have qualified her to teach her son. So these are the words of King Lemuel, the burden which his mother taught him. How wonderful to have here the advice, I believe, from Bathsheba, the daughter of the oath, to her son Solomon. It says in Romans chapter 8, If God be for us, who can be against us? So it applies to us as well. Indeed, all the time that God was with Solomon, nothing was against him. Because when his wives turned away his heart from God, then God forsook him and raised up an adversary. The burden, of course, which Bathsheba instructed Solomon was how to find and to recognize a virtuous woman. She had to be fit to be a good wife to him and a queen for her people as well. She had to lead by example. And in the absence of her husband, which is quite frequent, a king has got a lot of business to do, to educate her children in the truth. And did she do it? Well, first of all, if you read through these verses, you can see that her son, who should have been the prospective husband of this virtuous woman, had to be worthy of her. He needed instruction first of all. We, brethren, we men, need instruction to become worthy of such a woman. And how does she start off in verse 2? She says, what my son? She doesn't use the usual word ben, which is son. She uses the word bar, which also means pure and clean. And that is what a son of God should be. What my son? And what the son of my womb? Why does she call him the son of her womb? Well, he had the same nature as she had. And she knew the weakness of the flesh, didn't she? Because it means the, the womb, the, the belly itself. And so Christ also was compassed about with our infirmities. He partook of flesh and blood, just like all the seed of Abraham. And then she says, and what the son of my vows. Well, her name is the daughter of the oath. She called her son the son of my vows. Which vow did she make to be able to call him the son of my vows? I can just imagine this, the scenario which we talked about earlier. That at the time when Nathan the prophet came to him and called him Yedidja because of Yahweh, it was such an, an, an awesome and such a solemn occasion that Bathsheba may have reciprocated by vowing Solomon to Yahweh. Just like Jephthah vowed his daughter who probably served all her life as a single sister in the tabernacle, educating little Samuel, who was dedicated to Yahweh by Hannah, his mother. So she may have dedicated him and paid special attention to this boy and tried to bring him up to become the future king of Israel and also to instruct him how to be worthy of a woman of valor. So what was her instruction? There are three, actually. Two negatives and one positive. The negative influence in our lives, as many for brethren but also for sisters, can be women and drink. But the positive one is knowing how to judge and how to speak. Because what does he say in verse 3? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. And you think of Solomon. He didn't heed this advice of his mother. He had a thousand wives, 300 wives and 700 concubines, and it destroyed him in the end. If we don't live a life of high moral principles, brothers and sisters, we also are going to be dis destroyed. But then she says in verse 4, It's not for kings, O Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes strong drink. Well, you may say there's nothing wrong having a little glass of wine, but the temptation is to drink more and more. And so we lose our senses because what happens next is, verse 5, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the judgment of any of the afflicted. Why does he say that? Did she have experience of a drunken husband? 
What was David doing? His men were fighting in, 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 in Rabat Amon, but he was, before it was dark, he was lying on his bed. Why did she say, lest they drink and forget the law? David forgot the law, didn't he? And he perverted the judgment of the afflicted. He killed Uriah and took his wife. So if we drink too much, brethren and sisters, then we get our head beclouded. We can't judge properly anymore. Strong drink, if verse 6, is only unto them that are ready to perish. And wine unto those that are of heavy hearts. Let him drink and forget his poverty and remember his misery no more. And some of you see those people that drink far too much. They just are in misery and they try to forget it all. But it doesn't give them happiness. But it can cloud our judgment as David's judgment was clouded at a very sense, very delicate situation with Bathsheba. Now we get a positive uh, advice from Bathsheba for Solomon. Open thy mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open thy mouth. That's what the king needs to do. Open his mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. That's what the king needs to do, brothers and sisters. And if we want to be kings and queens in the kingdom of God, then we also need to judge righteously, to plead the cause of the poor and of the needy. Well, God certainly, uh, Solomon certainly took this to heart, didn't he? Because in 1 Kings chapter 3, and keep your hands in Proverbs here, in 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 9, In verse 5 says, And Gibeon Yahweh appeared to Solomon and dreamed by night. And he said, Ask what I shall give thee. And what did he ask for? In verse 9, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people that are made discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? And the speech pleased Yahweh that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lord, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And Solomon had a wise heart. That's the advice which he received from his mother, from Bathsheba. Because he could open his mouth in judgment. Remember that woman, those two women arguing about the baby and all that? He said, bring a sword. Well, who can judge like that? Only the wisdom of God. And he pleaded the cause of the poor and needy. But did he find the right woman? His first wife was the daughter of Pharaoh. Was that a wise choice or was it just a political agreement? See, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, Solomon very sadly says this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 27 and verse, up to verse 29, he says, Behold, this have I found, says the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find none. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Though this have I found, that God has made men upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Well, the only woman Solomon had a spiritual relationship, I believe, was not one of his many wives, but the Queen of Sheba, who was black but comely. But Jesus will find his virtuous woman, and how do we long to belong to that multitudinous bride? And then we go to, back to Proverbs chapter 31, to those wonderful verses, starting from verse 10 to 31. Who can find a virtuous woman for a price is far above rubies? Now these verses from 10 to 31 are set in alphabetical order. And you may later on want to have a look at this if you know a little bit of Hebrew. This always hangs up in the kitchen of my wife. It says, Eshet Chayel. It's not a virtuous woman. It's a woman of valor. It starts with the Aleph. The second verse starts with the Bet, a Gimel, a Dalat, a He. So you get a whole alphabet until the last letter Tav. You're going to look at this later on. So this is set in alphabetical order, brothers and sisters, for brothers and sisters to learn this by heart if we want to be the bride of Christ. 
Now, who is this woman? Who can find a woman of valor? Is she a woman that always cooks a meal absolutely perfectly, no dust on the ledges, and the children are always nicely dressed, never dirty laundry around? Is that a virtuous woman? Is that what we should look for in our sisters, brethren? Who is this woman? It says, her price is far above rubies. Now, that occurs elsewhere in the scriptures. If you go to Job chapter 28, the same phrase is used. We need to compare scripture with scripture to find out the importance of these phrases. In chapter 28, Joe speaks about all the wonderful treasures you can dig out from the earth and in a deep mine shaft which men have cut through the earth. But verse 12 he says, But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, now is it found in the land of the living. And then he goes on to say, You can't find it in the depth. It can be valued for the gold of Ophir. And then it says in verse 18, No mention shall be made of coral or pearls, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The price of a virtuous woman is above rubies. In chapter 20 of Proverbs, and there are more Proverbs like that, in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 15, it says, There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. So the lips of knowledge are more precious than a multitude of rubies. So wisdom, brothers and sisters, and these faithful lips, lips of knowledge, that is the true wife which you look for. So an ashet chayal is wisdom. The lips of knowledge are of equally high value in the sight of God. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. It's the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price, above rubies. And in Psalm 45, we know that the king's daughter is all glorious within. There's only one woman in the scripture who is called a virtuous woman. And that, of course, is Ruth. And in the context of our study of those women in the line of Christ, those specially chosen women who had all their difficulties, who were ready to lay down their life, but were saved because they had something to preserve their life. Well, can these women be found in this beautiful description of the virtuous woman? It will take far too long to go through all these verses, of these wonderful verses. We'd like to concentrate on how the deeds done by these four women mentioned in the line of Jesus, manifested the qualities of these virtuous women. And if we want to be the bride of Christ, brethren and sisters, then we've got to be like this woman. Ruth is in the first verse. Who can find a virtuous woman? Well, that was in the book of Ruth. All people know that thou art a virtuous woman. The only woman in the whole Bible that is called an Eshet Chayel, a woman of valor. And Bathsheba understood what it meant to be a virtuous woman. She had a terrible time in her life. She was married to an older husband. He was killed by David, made pregnant by him, and all the things he suffered. It must have given her so much time to think and reflect on the mercy of God that she wanted to be a virtuous woman. In the end of her life, she could give this advice to her son. Ruth is also in verse 15. In verse 15 of Proverbs 31, it says, She rises also while it is yet night, and gives meat to her household, and a portion to her maidens. Remember Ruth? She went out early in the morning to glean in the field of Boaz, and what she had gleaned, she shared in her household, which only consisted of her mother-in-law, Naomi. In verse 23, it says, Her husband is known in the gates, when he sits among the elders of the land. She had, an, she had an important husband because Boaz, her husband, was known in the gate of Bethlehem. And in verse 26, she opens her mouth in wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness. She showed great kindness to both Naomi and Boaz, a much older man than she was. And Boaz 
recognized it. In verse 28, it says, her children also rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Rahab is also, throughout many verses, I'd like to concentrate just on verse 13, where it says, she seeketh wool and flax, and worketh willingly with her hands. Now, she grew flax, and what you need to do is flax, we once went to a museum of natural history and there was an exhibition there of how you turn flax into fine linen. But the instrument they used would look like medieval torture instrument because, first of all, the bundles of uh, flax were laid out on the ground and let the frost come down and the hail and the snow. They drove his carts over it and they took those bundles and they shredded them through instruments of sharp metal spikes and they beat it and beat it to pulp. Nothing for out of... A hundred kilos of flax, you only get about a hundred grams of fine linen. That's amazing to have seen that. And that was to what she was engaged in, because she was a grower of flax. She was ready to do all this hard work to bring forth the fine white linen, which you know is a type of the righteousness of the saints. And she used these raw materials to protect the two spies. One of them, Salmon, later becoming her husband. And there's Tamar. Well, she's there in the last two verses. It says, Favor is deceitful and beauty vain, but the woman that fears Yahweh, she shall be praised. Well, did not her own works praise her in the gate? Did she not fear Yahweh more than Judah and the reproach of men? So that Judah had to say, She is more righteous than I. And did she not the only thing that would allow her to continue the tradition of mankind by being saved in the childbearing of that promised seed of the woman. And the last verse, did not her own work praise her in the gates, give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. Let's go to Ruth chapter 4. There we've got this other valiant woman in the book of Ruth. Let's read in verse 9, from verse 9. It says, And Boaz said unto the elders and to all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Gileon's and Machlon's of the hand of Naomi, Moreover, Ruth, the Moabites, the wife of Mahlon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Yahweh make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrathah, and be thou famous in Bethlehem, and let thy house be like the house of Phares, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which Yahweh shall give thee of this young woman. So here is Tamar praised in the gate of Bethlehem. That the last verse in Proverbs chapter 31, give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. And so she was finally vindicated, because even by the sisters find it difficult to study the book of Tamar and not to blame her for that awful thing which she did. And if you can't see that act of faith, that she was ready to risk her life, by the sisters, we miss a great opportunity to be ready to lay down our own lives for our friends. He said, no man has greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his brethren. Solomon, sadly, did not find his virtuous woman because he didn't listen to the good advice of his mother. We also need to listen, brothers and sisters, to the word of God, to change ourselves, first of all, as a king, not to give our strength unto women, not to live immoral lives, not to be drunkard so that our mind is clouded, but to open our mouth for the dumb in the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. Open our mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and the needy because that is true religion before God. So Solomon didn't find his virtuous woman, but she will be the bride of Christ. 
Because all of us, brothers and sisters, hope to be part of that bride. Therefore, we need to spend our lifetime preparing since our baptism. We need to cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness. We've all got different qualities. We're all different people. We all find ourselves into different circumstances. But all of us have the opportunity to show our faith. And no one of us can exactly do the same as one another. Neither should we try copy one another. We all stand alone before the judgment seat of Christ. One thing is certain, by their commendation by God, these four women will form part of the bride. They will be there, those four, and let us then be with them there. After we have studied their lives and shown what is important, we should show the same faith in whatever circumstances we may find ourselves. So that finally, if you go to Psalm chapter 45... We all the bride, all part of the bride. We all like that daughter in Psalm 45 and verse 10. Who is to consider and incline our ears. We need to open our ears to the word of God. Hearken, verse 10, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. Like all these women did. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. For he is thy Lord. And worship thou him. Brethren and sisters and young people, we have a few minutes for any further comments or questions. On behalf of everyone here tonight, I'd like to thank our brother Lane for his preparation, thoughts, and his talk tonight. And now I call upon our brother David Luke for announcements while the collection goes around, which is for a CBM Heritage College. Heritage College. We'll close tonight's Bible class with the singing of hymn 351, followed by prayer.